It's a good to be here with you on this Sabbath day. Happy Sabbath. And I trust that like you, you've had a busy, like me, you've had a busy week. And um, it's just something special every week about the Sabbath. It doesn't go, it doesn't grow old. It doesn't get out of style. The Sabbath is every week such a refreshing and such a blessing. And tonight I am very honored to be able to spend this time with you. Can you hear me okay? All right. Um, to me it sounds like we're in an echo chamber a little bit. Um, but as long as you can understand what I'm saying, that's, that's good. Those acoustics serve us very well when we're singing our hymns, don't they? It took me back all the way to... I felt like I was at Washington Hills with a whole bunch of young people lustily singing hymns again. Well, I feel tonight like I'm speaking to the choir a bit. Um, I know that you come from, um, I think mostly from supporting ministries, from self-supporting schools. Schools that uh, we, we would presume are seeking, striving for that higher ground, uh, and educationally that higher ground, um, along the lines of the, the Madison order of education, we might say. It's not a Madison order, really. It's, I, I like to think of it more of an Adventist order of education, because I think that the only thing that happened differently at, at Madison and um, Avondale and other places where schools were founded with the benefit of Ellen White's Council on Education was that, was that they had those ideas right there before them. And as we look at history, as we look at the history of Adventist education, we find that not every Adventist educator was as fortunate as McGann and Sutherland were. Not every Adventist educator had the advantage of hundreds, even thousands of pages of inspired counsel on the topic of education. If we go all the way back to 1852, we find that there were people among the Adventist little flock who did not believe that education was important at all, really not on any level. In fact, they, they argued that the, the second coming was still so near that they didn't need to worry about schools and schooling for their kids. It was this group of people that James White took to task and he wrote a number of articles in, in his periodicals, in his in his literature that he was sending out to this scattered group of believers, and he he rebuked them for this concept. And his his uh, burden for the training of young people was intent enough, intense enough that he began what we know as uh, the as the Youth Instructors Magazine. This was for young people to help them understand their role in Adventism in this movement that was afoot, and uh, perhaps in. Partially in response to James White's um, writing on the subject, a number of schools began in 1853 and 1854, mostly in New York. The best known was one in Bucks Bridge, New York, uh, taught by the 19-year-old Martha Byington. Most of the schools, however, died out within a couple of years. It was, it was, it was the experience that these young people had, had, had had a hard time in Advent, in, in public schools, and, um, they tried for a few years to run these small schools. And well, in 1855, the Whites moved from Battle Creek, um, or to Battle Creek from Rochester. And the fledgling Adventists, uh, who moved with them began a church school that was operated for about six years in the late 1850s. 
And it was discontinued, however, when nearby uh, where the Adventist settlement was, a brand new, well-equipped public school was opened. And the Adventist school um, was closed. Now, at that time, most of the Adventist young people were actually not going through any type of higher learning. They would typically go through eight grades. And the Adventist young people in Battle Creek, um, the white boys among them, when they finished their eight grades of schooling at the little public school there, they would generally get a, a job working at the press, and uh, they would be put into the service of the mission of the church. And so it was in the summer of 1868 that Edson White noticed a stranger splitting wood for the boiler that ran the press. After work, he and one of his friends, George States, along with some others, stopped by to get acquainted with this new person they didn't recognize. They learned his name was Goodloe Bell, and he had one time been a student at a, at a pioneering school known as Oberlin College in the early 1800s. And uh, after finishing college, he had worked as a teacher in various places, but had lost his health through overwork. Can I hear an amen from one of the teachers? So, after this discussion with Goodloe Bell, um, some of the boys, the um, Edson White and George States and some others, began to urge him to uh, actually teach them. They had finished their primary school, they had gone to work, but they had a hunger for more learning. So in the summer of 1868, Goodloe Bell began to teach in the long, warm evenings about 12 Adventist boys. And it was quite an auspicious group of young people. Looking back, the two white boys, Willie and Edson, were among them, and also two of J.P. Kellogg's sons, Will Keith and John Harvey. And uh, these, of course, individuals would go on to make their mark not only on the church, but also in the world as well. In the fall, more boys asked to enroll. And so the old dilapidated press building that J.P. Kellogg had, had earlier given or um, built for the press uh, was pressed again into service. Bell and his family moved into the downstairs after they patched it up a bit. And uh, the upstairs long, low-ceilinged room was used as the church school. Well, it wasn't a church school because it wasn't really official yet. It wouldn't be for another four years that it would become an official school. In 1872, the General Conference Committee was so impressed by Goodloe Bell's work that they voted to officially make it the first Adventist school. And according to, um, to Dr. Maxwell, Mervyn Maxwell, um, there was also a lot of interaction happening between Ellen White and Goodloe Bell during this time. She really appreciated his discipline that he worked with the students with. Um, but we have to remember one thing, and this is surprising to many Adventists and even many Adventist educators. Ellen White, up to this time, had actually not written anything regarding education. 1872, she writes her first message that is specifically designed to address Adventist education. And we might assume, and some do assume, that Adventist education was founded or was birthed at the, at the behest of the, the writings of Ellen White and the Spirit of Prophecy. 
But not so in Battle Creek. In Battle Creek, they had already had a number of years of experience in starting the school and operating the school when Ellen White writes her first council. It's in Testimony 22 of 1872, and it starts like this. This is the way she starts her message. It is the nicest work ever assumed by men and women to deal with youthful minds. You've probably read that, and you know that the, the definition of nicest in 1872, varies somewhat from our understanding of the word today. The nicest work, a nice work was like a watchmaker did. A nice work was somewhat tedious. It had a lot of details. It required meticulous choice, tactful handling, careful consideration, precise or scrupulous conduct. That's what nice meant in 1872. And Ellen White says it is the nicest work ever assumed by men and women to deal with youthful minds. She goes on, the greatest care should be taken taken in education of youth to vary the manner of instruction so as to call forth the high and noble powers of the mind. Well, you can understand that with, uh, with Ellen White's counsel, there, was, there were changes to be made because really, um, well, Good Bell had the experience of Oberlin. And Oberlin, if you're not familiar with it, Oberlin had been sort of a, a pioneering school of its own in its own right in the early 1800s. It was the, well, at first he, he taught there, but later he was, he was the president of, of, the, of the school. Charles Finney was sort of the the, the um, Billy Graham of the early 1800s. He was the Presbyterian revivalist, a pietist, really, um, a, in nature. But he was the revivalist, and he was a, a, a attached very intimately with Oberlin College. It was a college that, that put students to work. They built their own cottages and lived in them instead of large dormitories. There was a, it was also the first co-ed uh, institution. And um, so this was a, 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 a pioneering area as well. Um, but it was very practical-minded. In fact, when Goodloe Bell was sick, he was not an Adventist, by the way, when Edson White and George States were talking to him on that day in 1868. Um, he had heard about Battle Creek, and he'd heard about the Adventists, and he thought they reminded him a lot of the sort of spirit and modalities of Oberlin when he was a student there. And he had been attracted to come and to, to get his, his health restored at the Western Institute of of health reform. And so um, this, was, this was something that uh, the, he was somewhat uh, reform-minded, but as they began to make this an official school, they realized or they desired somebody with more letters behind their name. They found a man, a young man, by the name of uh, Sidney Brownsberger. And this is after Ellen White has been writing some messages about what kind of a school should be established in Battle Creek. In fact, they had, they had, they had found a piece of property. Well, it's sort of another story. And I, I have to be careful because I love history. I'm a historian. And so I, I might get a little bit off the topic sometimes. But, um, basically, Ellen White was guiding them as they were looking at a number of pieces of property. One was an old fairgrounds outside of town. Another was a large farm. And um, they were looking at these two pieces of property, and Ellen White basically said, you know, either one of these would do quite well, and satisfied that whatever choice was made, it would be all right, she left on the train and went to California. That was a long ways away in 1872. And um, however, after she left, another piece of property came available. It was neither the farm nor the fairgrounds. It was right in the middle of Battle Creek, and it was 12 acres. It was, it was a great deal. 
And so the brethren decided to buy the 12 acres, and they thought, we could never use this much land for a school. So they promptly sold off, and I'd have to, my memory is not always precise. It was either five acres or seven acres they sold, but either five or seven were remaining. And this would, of course, come back to haunt the church later, as, as history would, would record. Ellen White, it is said, when she heard the news over in California, she wept. She had just started writing these messages about education, educational reform. God was showing her that Adventist schools needed to be different than the other schools around. This was something that was hard for people to understand. Sidney Brownsberger had just graduated. Well, in 1869, three years earlier, four years earlier, he had graduated from the University of Michigan with a master's degree. And he was qualified to lead this new school. And as the message came, she came back, actually, in 1872, she was uh, back, or 1874, as they began this school, uh, the new building was under, built, uh, underway, being built, and Sydney was the new principal, headmaster, and um, she shared with them some of their counsel, her counsel about a Bible-based manual training school. And the board, who listened, they turned to Sidney, Mr. Brownsberger, and they asked him, So, what do you think we can do about this counsel that Sister White has just given us? And you have to credit the man for his honesty. Sidney Brownsberger truthfully admitted, I do not know anything about conduct the conducting of such a school. It was completely foreign to anything that he had experienced. Some historians argue that the board decided to go ahead with Brownsberger with the understanding that they really couldn't put into place exactly what Ellen White was writing. And, and if you've studied the history of Battle Creek, and maybe even in Madison, God's Beautiful Farm, the story of, of Sutherland and McGann at Battle Creek, you'll know some of that that went on, right? Some of the things that happened in Battle Creek that Ellen White labored with and labored with. Malcolm Bull and, and Keith Lockhart in their book, Seeking a Sanctuary, opined that Adventists have really never fully been able to catch up with the counsel and education that Ellen White gave. We sometimes think of it as having been there already and that schools were built on that model. That was true of Avondale, it was true of, of uh, Walla Walla, it was true of a number of other schools that were built by people who were listening very closely to Ellen White. Madison, of course, being the only school she sat on the board of. But not most of the schools. They were trying to reform as they learned new things from Ellen White. And sometimes those things were not very popular at all. And so you have a tug of war that has taken place, in my view at least, in the history of Adventist education. And it's not just a tug of war between Adventist education and worldly education, or the world's education. It's even a tug of war between Adventist education and the model for education that the Spirit of Prophecy lays out. It began there in Battle Creek, because the, the, uh, the, 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 the principal teachers were having to play catch-up. There's traditional education that's classroom-intensive. There's sports and games as physical training, classical languages and, and literature and popular degrees. On the other hand, 
her counsel about educational reform, practical training, manual labor. And by manual labor, I'm not talking about necessarily digging ditches or bucking logs. I'm talking about working with the hands as a, as a means of training. Mission-minded, whole-person education with conversion as a priority. This tug-of-war continues down to our time. And as we look at education and redemption this evening, I want us to sort of see in the major arenas of education how this tug-of-war between what we naturally do and what we're accustomed to doing and the model that we've, we've been around in the world around us it creates this tug-of-war between what we naturally understand and the ideal that, that the spirit of prophecy does lay out. Of course, now we are also fascinated to realize that um, we must interpret what she wrote in the light of the world we live in today. But let's just notice what she said about the Madison School and um, in education in general. The Madison School, the pamphlet... Uh, page 28, God has revealed to me that we are in positive danger of bringing into our educational work the customs and fashions that prevail in the schools of the world. That's that tug of war, right, that I'm talking about. If teachers are not guarded in their work, they will place on the necks of their students worldly yokes instead of the yoke of Christ. The plan of the schools we shall establish in these closing years of the work is to be of an entirely different order from those we have instituted in the past. Now, you, you catch what she's saying there. She is saying that we as a people have to come up higher, right? That even the schools that we have established in the past, we need a, a, a different order, an entirely different order of schools in the future. She continues and she says in page 32 of the same pamphlet, the Lord does not require that the educational work at Madison shall be changed all about before it can receive the hearty support of our people. The work that has been done there is approved of God and he forbids that this line of work shall be broken up. And I include this, this paragraph here for a very important reason. I realize that as self-supporting educators, you circulate in, in some of the more conservative circles in the Adventist church. And I realize that within some of these circles, there are voices calling for an education that is radically different than Madison education. I'm not going to go any further. I am just going to say that Ellen White's counsel was that the Madison school and the way it was operated, they did have classrooms, they did have teachers, they did have tests, they were required to be tested on their knowledge. We could go down the list of things that, you, and you may be familiar with some ideas out there that are sort of contrary to this model of education. Was the Madison School, was it, was it completely out of line with what God wanted? Here we find very clearly that it, it was not. In fact, it, it does not, the Lord does not require that the educational work at Madison shall be changed all about. The work has been done, that has been done, there's approved of God. The Lord will continue to bless and sustain the workers so long as they follow his counsel. Just a word, word to the wise in the light of some of the things that I have heard floating around in Adventism today. We believe in an educational system that is inspired by God and that on numerous occasions, particularly as Ellen White was present with the founding of Avondale, present with the founding of Madison, and her counsel was written in real time to them, we can see a model of education. It doesn't need to be a mystery. It doesn't need to be some fanciful invention of our own. It's actually very clear if we're only willing to study history. Now, 
To truly understand Adventist education, I believe that we need to look back at the beginning, at the creation of man. And I have put most of my Bible passages on the slide here this evening, slides, um, because I want to cover quite a bit of ground. I would encourage you to open your Bibles, if you like. Um, we'll be looking at some verses as well. But I want to just highlight, and I, you know, as I, as I, as I share to this evening, I just want you to know that, that I've struggled a little bit to know how to approach this subject with this group of people. What can I share with you that will be a blessing? And I pray that as we open God's word together, this will speak to your heart. There'll be something here that you can take back and it will improve your own walk with Jesus and your school's ability to lead young people to walk with him as well. As we look at the beginning, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, verse 27 says, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Now you ask the question this evening, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Now, there's some who believe it's just this dominion part that follows immediately afterward and is often in the context of being made in the image of God. But I believe it's more than that. I believe that God made us a multifaceted being like he is when he made us in his image. And we're going to look at some of those facets and some of those things here tonight. First of all, we believe that God made man in the beginning with a physical body. Now, we don't know the image of the Father exactly. We don't know. We know, of course, Christ is human um, now. And, of course, we're sort of pretty much told not to speculate about any type of the visage or uh, uh, being of the Holy Spirit. But this is nonetheless what God did when he made man in his image. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. One of the reasons, I suppose, that the Bible records God meticulously handcrafting mankind is that there can be no belief that even before the fall, there were some sort of spirit beings or... No, man had a body, right? A physical body. We are physically created. God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. He's not only physical, he also has mental and emotional capabilities in the image of his creator. Out of the ground, chapter 2, verse 19... Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. What do we see here as we notice the very first actions of our first father? Adam is naming the creatures. Now this took a bit of knowledge and intellect and even creativity to be able to give them all names and even more so it took some intellect to remember all of those names, right? Of course, we understand that he had a perfect memory as I hope to have one day. It will be in the new earth. But Adam has the, the capacity to, 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 to name these animals Different names, fitting names perhaps. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. Not only did he create 
man physically and mentally and emotionally, God also created man in his image in that he created him to be a social being. God said, the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. I believe that God made us in the beginning. He made us in his image with the, not just the capacity, but the need for peer-to-peer relationships, for relationships of like individuals, someone like us, someone who can be comparable to him, as he says of, of Adam's need. We are made for a relationship with a peer. Now, this is both, this is a double, double-edged sword, isn't it? Because in the fall, relationships become a source of friction. Many of the, many of the very qualities that define us as being made in the image of God are the qualities that are turned on their head by the enemy to try to cause disruption to God's plan. Whether it's the creativity, whether it's the intellect, whether it's the emotions, all of those things are gifts of God, but the enemy uses them. Not only are we made physically, mentally, emotionally, socially, we are also spiritual beings. Evidently, from Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8, we note that man in the beginning had a habit, or God had a habit, of meeting with man on a regular basis, face-to-face, communication. That is to say, not only did God make us in his image with the need and the capacity for relationships with peers, God made us in the beginning with the need and the capacity for a relationship with him. And that is our spiritual dimension. God created us for. He made us for a relationship with God. He made us for communion with God. And this is the way God made us in the beginning. Now, we could talk about the Eden school and in that perfect environment with perfect beings and perfect emotions and mental capacities and perfect relationships, what an opportunity for learning there would have been. Can you imagine, those of you who are in schools. Can you imagine how much teaching you could do, how much learning could happen if you didn't have to deal with people? Well, I mean, uh, people problems, you know what I'm saying. In the beginning, they didn't have people problems, right? Because they were in the garden, that perfect place, as perfect beings. But after sin, something happened. To each of these characteristics... Something happened. In the physical realm, we see what happened in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 19. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. Dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Dying you shall die, Jesus had said, right? God had told Adam and Eve. They began this, the process of dying after the fall, after sin. Also, in the mental and emotional area, we see the immediate change that sin brought. I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. How long did it take after the fall for negative emotions to become a part of of, of the human experience? It was practically instantaneous, wasn't it? Uh, From what we can tell, it was the same day they began to experience fear and they began to experience something that was less than intellectually very compelling. The idea they could hide from God. Do you see what's happening here? I mean, God made Adam intelligent. 
he named all the creatures. I won't venture to guess how many there were, but that was just, that's just a sampling of his intellect, right? And here we find, a few hours after sin, after they realize they're naked and they make their fig leaf garments, they're trying to hide from God. I would suggest to you that besides sin, and a few other things, maybe the fig leaf garments wasn't the brightest idea. This was pretty stupid. This was not intelligent. Sin affected the intellect and the emotions. Not only the IQ, but the EQ. What about socially? Same day, same situation. Verse 12. Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. First day, first marital dispute. Not taking responsibility for actions. Blaming Eve, blaming God. Physically, they began to die. Intellectually, they began to have non sequiturs. Socially, they're fighting among themselves. And spiritually, when, G, when, the, when, when it's time for them to meet with God, they run and hide. They're trying to avoid a personal relationship. And I would propose to you that the rest of the Bible, however many it would be if you exclude these first three chapters, the rest of the Bible is really the record of man trying to run from God and God trying to get through to him. The rest of the Bible is about God trying through the plan of redemption and through the prophets and messages that communicated the plan, God trying to restore the image of God that has been lost through sin and through the fall. God is trying to restore the image of God. And I believe that image can be restored. And... As Adventists, we sometimes think of ourselves as a multifaceted being like this. You know, we, we, we realize we have a spiritual sphere of, of our lives, and, and God needs to be, of course, in our lives. And for some people, even in the Adventist church, I hate to say this, but I'm a pastor and I see it and I, it hurts me. I realize that some people see their, even their spiritual life in a very external manner. They see it as going to church and paying their tithe. Is doing the right thing, sort of a checklist type of experience. And they don't understand that it's, it's meant to be a personal relationship with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. With our Creator, our Redeemer, our soon-coming King, with Jesus. It's a personal walk with Him. But as Adventists, of course, we understand very clearly, we understand very clearly that we are not just spiritual beings, but we're made in the image of God, right? So we're also what kind of beings? We're also physical beings. And so as Adventists, we have been blessed with a wonderful message we call the, the health message, right? It's even referred to as the right arm of the gospel, right? And so we understand that, well, besides going to church and paying our tithe and doing our churchy things, our religious things, maybe even what we consider our spiritual things, we understand that we don't eat some things and we eat other things. That we're supposed to exercise. In fact, 
New Start, if we were to just use the acronym, right? Um, nutrition, exercise, and water, and sunshine, and temperance, and air, rest, and trust, and divine power. All those things that we're supposed to be doing. And we have a message to take the world. And we even, as educators, understand that we have a third part of our being, and that is our mental or emotional being. And as educators, at least during the period of life when we're in school, we understand that Adventism has something to say on this realm of our life as well, right? Are you with me on this? That's the way we as Adventists see it often. For many Christians, however, especially after they finish school, and if they're not a teacher, it... If they see the spiritual, that's great. If they, they add the physical, if they're Adventists, probably they do. Um, but their, their mental and their emotional health is not something that really comes up on our radar a lot as Christians or even as Adventists, unless you're an educator or a student. In fact, I would propose to you that sometimes we have, we have really failed to have a holistic approach to the area of mental and emotional health. We have a lot of counsel. Two whole volumes of mind, character, and personality. A lot of material. But sometimes, even in self-supporting work, what we do in the other two realms sort of covers for the deficiencies that we have in this realm. And what I'm trying to get at, I'm not trying to, I don't want to meddle here, okay? I'm, I'm preaching, not meddling, right? And so I'm going to share with you some examples um, that that aren't from that aren't from uh, educational work. It's actually from a book I read recently called "The, the Emotionally Healthy Church." And they're from the church, but I I think as you see some of the examples, you might realize that even within educational work, God's work, church work, and even self-supporting work, some of these examples show a a, a lack of understanding of emotional health that we need to have. You see, um, educational work is not immune from the pallor that's caused by Christianity's ignoring of emotional health. We have assumed for too long that simply growing spiritually, listen to me carefully, we've assumed that simply growing spiritually would give people automatically the tools to grow emotionally. But we all have, we bring to the table, whether it's our board meeting or our church board or school board or the classroom, we bring our past with us. Some of us, we all have baggage from our past. We need to address how to deal with our emotional health. Sometimes it's a matter of forgiveness. Sometimes it's a matter of communication skills. We must find ways to address what we bring the ways of relating and communicating that we've often excused with, it's just the way I am. This is my family. This is the way I do things. I'm German. I'm this, whatever. Christians have for too long pretended that they're leading from a position of strength. And as I've studied the Apostle Paul, I've realized the Apostle Paul does not lead from a position of strength. He leads from a position of weakness. He is open about his brokenness, his vulnerabilities. And he is strong in Christ's strength, not his own strength. And he is a model of an emotionally healthy person. Let me give you some examples. You'll, you'll probably relate to, maybe, maybe you can relate to some of these things. The board member who never says, I was wrong, or I'm sorry. 
had a phone call not too many weeks ago from a head elder of another church. Just wanted some, some advice. What do I do with this elder that tells people very strong things and people keep leaving our church? Nobody wants to address it. This is where we need an understanding of helping people grow emotionally. What about the children's church leader who constantly criticizes others? The, the high control small group leader who cannot tolerate different points of view. The 35-year-old husband busily serving in the church, unaware of his wife's loneliness at home. What about the worship leader who interprets any suggestion as a personal attack and a personal rejection? Or perhaps the Sunday school teacher struggling with feelings of bitterness and resentment towards the pastor. I want you to understand, friends, I think this is possible even within educational circles, not just churches. It's something that as a pastor I've learned we have to, we have to look at. We have to help people. Why? Because God made us in his image with emotions. Mentally and emotionally, we are created in his image. But that image has been distorted by sin. And the, the work of the gospel is to help us restore that image. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 speaks of the importance of this work. The importance of this work. When we look at well, the responsibility as members of the body of Christ. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30 gives us some context as to how essential this work is. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30 says this, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Would you agree with me that he's talking about something important here? He says, he goes on, he says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. You see, I believe, friends, that God is calling today for Adventists and Adventist educators to recognize that you cannot compartmentalize your lives into different realms. You cannot, you cannot just pretend that you're okay spiritually but without being willing to grow emotionally. And I think the same is true physically. I believe that we are one person. We are, well, we'll get to that in just a minute. But if, if I am not willing to grow in my health, I will be limited in how much I can grow spiritually. If I am not willing to grow emotionally in how I relate to others, and how I have relationships with others, how I communicate with others, how I forgive others, how I love others, I will be limited as to how much I can grow spiritually. The reality is that you can be a dynamic, gifted speaker for God in public and be an unloving spouse and parent at home. You can function as a school administrator or a teacher and be unteachable and secure and defensive. You can memorize entire books of the Bible and yet be unaware of depression and anger hurting other people. You can fast and pray a half a day, half a day a week for years and constantly be critical of others, justifying it as spiritual discernment. You can see shortcomings in others and rebuke them in a hurtful manner, believing it to be the straight testimony. Or, on the other hand, you can see the same shortcomings in others and not be willing to lovingly confront them believing yourself to be patient. Either ditch 
the, the devil would have us be in. Because if we are going to be restored to the image of God, we have to be restored as a whole person. And we too often have not been very uh, focused on helping our organizations, our institutions, and most of all, our precious young people learn how they can become emotionally healthy Seventh-day Adventist Christian leaders. The way we begin is by beginning ourselves. The way we begin is by modeling the type of self-sacrificing love and discipline and emotional health that we need. You see, when we look at our being in this way, we can see that they overlap. And honestly, that's the way most of my life I viewed the way I was made in the image of God. There's an effect on one another, right? When my mind is affected, my body is affected. When my body is affected, my mind is affected. When my spiritual is affected, my, it affects my, my physical and so forth and so on, right? We understand that. We understand that. And that's the way I looked at that. Unfortunately, in reality, this is too often the way it is in our lives. We compartmentalize our lives and we focus on growing spiritually or maybe growing spiritually and physically. But we have very little emphasis on growing emotionally and mentally in our health. But God made us in his image as a whole being. And I think that the better illustration for how he made us and how we are is something more like this. We are a spiritual, mental, emotional, physical person made in the image of God. And in order to grow, we have to grow harmoniously. We have to grow balanced. We have to grow as a whole person. We have to grow spiritually, yes. Mentally and emotionally, yes. Physically, yes. It is our, it is our work as Adventist educators to help restore the image of God in our young people. And it starts with us. This, I believe, is the understanding of the gospel that is embraced by Adventism. Adventism is not a message designed or intended by God to help us spiritually. It is not a movement designed to help us physically. It is a movement designed by God to help us in every aspect of our being. Spiritual, mental, and physical. The health message, by the way, is not a peripheral matter. Just one of those things over there that sort of overlaps a little bit. It is the right arm of the what? The gospel. You cannot separate it from spiritual things. It is the right arm of the gospel. The, the work of Adventist education is not solely for the purpose of keeping Adventist youth within our own culture or within the church. It is for the purpose of teaching them to live as men and women being restored into the image of God mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally, and socially. It is not calculated to produce facades of Christians who regurgitate our favorite platitudes of idealism. True Christian education, Adventist education, is like the gospel, intended to foster a generation with self-awareness of their brokenness 
and a refreshing, honest, transparent vulnerability. A generation who strive for the higher than the highest ideals in his strength. You see, the Bible tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and verse 23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. How? Completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. There you have it. There's the gospel's intention to sanctify us, to change our lives in all the areas of our being. We're made in the image of God in this mental, physical, spiritual being. And the gospel is intended to sanctify us completely. Our whole spirit, our whole soul, our whole body being preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful thing this message of the gospel is. That which was taken from us at Eden, it will not be completely restored, I'm sure, until we come to the new Eden. But the work of the gospel is to restore the image of God into man, even now, into humanity. But all of us, the Phillips translation of 2 Corinthians 3.18, a familiar verse, says this, But all of us who are Christians have no veils on our faces, but reflect like mirrors the glory of the Lord. We are transfigured by the Spirit of the Lord in ever-increasing splendor into what? His own image. Whose image is that? God, the Lord, Christ. Yes, right. We, we lost some of the image of God that we were created in. Sin has done damage to our, the image of God in our soul. But the gospel, the good news of the gospel, is that as we behold Jesus Christ, as we spend time following the pattern, as we spend time at the cross of Calvary, as we spend time, spend time realizing that the, the cross is the great equalizer, that none of us are superior or inferior to one another, that we are all sinners saved by Jesus Christ, as we spend time with the gospel, we are changed. And it's not just, it's not just into anything, it's being changed into the image of God. The gospel is all about restoration. Romans chapter 8 and verse 29, following that better known verse, verse 28, all things work together for good to them who love the Lord and they were called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknow, he also predestined to be conformed to the what? Is that good news, friends? The good news, friends, I do believe in predestination. I'm not a Calvinist, but I do believe in predestination. I believe that God has already chosen, it is his will, his choice, for the image of Jesus to be restored in your heart and life. I believe that is God's choice for you. The gospel is about restoration. Colossians chapter 3 and verses 9 and 10. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. How are we, uh, how are we being renewed? According to the image of him who created him. That's the purpose of the gospel. That's the work of the gospel. The work of the gospel is to undo the damage of sin in our souls. The work of the gospel is to restore the image of God in our hearts and lives. Now, in Councils to Parents, Teachers, and Students, Ellen White echoes these, these uh, teachings of the scripture. Love, the basis of creation and of redemption, is the basis of true education. 
to love him, the infinite, the omniscient one, with the whole strength and mind and heart, means the highest development of every power. It means that the whole being, the body, the mind, as well as the soul, the image of God is to be restored. In the whole being, the body, the mind, as well as the soul, the image of God is to be restored. That's the work of the gospel, and that's also the work, what does it say? Of education. The work of the gospel and the work of the education. Child Guidance, page 239, says this, True education means more than taking a certain course of study. It is broad. It includes the harmonious development of all the physical powers and the mental faculties. It teaches the love and fear of God and is a preparation for the faithful discharge of life's duties. If I had time, I would share with you what I think is so fundamental when we read the Bible. In fact, I remember my parents gave me a Bible when I was just a little kid. I think I was about five years old or so. They gave me this new English Bible. It's a big old modern language, you know, English Bible. And um, I could read it, although um, I, I, I wasn't a great reader, I don't suppose, at that age. But I remember reading it, and there's a bunch of things that fascinated me. I'm just honest. I, I don't know why, but I really liked the book of Numbers. Um, you'd think I would have gone into mathematics, maybe. But in my margin, I added up all the different tribes, you know, and tried to do the math. And it was, it was really messed up. I saw it later. But... Um, Another thing that really impressed me at a very young age, I don't know how old I was, but I remember reading the book of Proverbs, and over and over, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord. And that was a mystery to me at the time. It was just a mystery. I mean, not so much the fear of the Lord. My parents taught me, you know, it's not to be afraid of him and so forth. But I never really understood why it was so important until much later as I studied the the first angel's message of Revelation chapter 14 and that first two-word injunction, fear God. And I began to realize that it's, it's really being contrasted with the fear of man. The fear of God is nothing more than stopping to care so much about what man thinks and being most concerned about what God thinks. That's when conversion happens. And that's when you begin the experience of character development. The fear of God. It teaches the love and fear of God. Those are not inimical terms. And the preparation for the faithful discharge of life's duty. Proper education includes not only mental discipline, but that training which will secure sound morals and correct deportment. In other words, if we are training intentionally young men and young women, For successful careers, we do well. But if that's all we do, we are not Adventist educators. We are not addressing the whole person. And I sometimes tell young people, and I have nothing against the great institutions of our world, and and, um, I have friends that are students at Yale and others, to schools of renown. And I have nothing against them, but after studying Adventist education and the ideal for Adventist education, what true education is, and that's not my term, that's the spirit of prophecy term, true education, I sometimes tell some of my colleagues, if you're going to Yale, just remember one thing. You're just getting, at most, a third of an education. And it's going to be on you 
It's going to be on you to get the other two-thirds. If all they're doing is addressing the academics, they're only addressing a third, at most, of what true education is all about. Proper education includes not only mental discipline, but that training which will secure sound morals and correct deportment. That work-study training, that ability to work with the hands, and it, well, we'll come to that in just a minute. The spiritual. There is nothing more important than the spiritual component of our educational message. Nothing. And if we're failing there, dare I say we're failing, regardless of the successful careers our students may have, there is nothing more important than the spiritual component of our training. And it's also, in some ways, I may be getting ahead of myself a little bit, but in some ways it's also the most difficult because of this. As a teacher, I found out I couldn't teach. It may not be new news to some of my students. <laughs> Alistair's back there. Uh, what I mean is, it's incumbent upon the students to learn. So when you talk about teaching, it's really sort of a mysterious term, this teaching. Because are you teaching if they're not learning? Doesn't seem like it. But, but you can't make them learn. It's sort of like you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink, right? And so I discovered that teaching is nothing more, a good teacher is someone who has learned to to recognize and even create what we call teachable moments where the students want to learn and then you can teach them. But the teaching doesn't really happen until they decide to learn. And that's what it felt like to me, at least, as a teacher. That's what it felt like. And nothing, nowhere is this more true than in the spiritual. Because you cannot make a person. You cannot have, if you have the most perfect school setting, it does not mean your student is going to grow spiritually that is still incumbent upon the student to make a decision. Because spiritual learning happens, spiritual growth happens when the fear of God is placed in their heart. It's a miracle of conversion. It's a miracle that happens. It, it, it's like the wind blowing in the trees. We can't completely explain it. It's the spirit that does it. But it's something that the most perfect environment or school cannot create. However... The wrong environment will quite handily prevent. Do you hear what I'm saying? The right environment cannot guarantee spiritual growth in the mind of the student because it's their free choice. God respects our freedom. But the wrong environment will make it hard, yea, almost impossible for students to grow spiritually. And that's my concern. When I tell a person you're only going to get a third of your education, you're going to have to work very, very hard. It might not even be the best thing for every person. I, I, don't, I don't personally recommend just anybody or everybody to go to Yale or Harvard or one of these places because I think that environment is actually hostile to a person who is not already well-established in their spiritual growth. And so... Um, Proper education includes mental discipline, but I would propose to you that the spiritual is all the more, even more, important. 
when we look at this tug-of-war we talked about between the traditional and even that which Adventist education had in the beginning, um, if, you want, if you want to read some interesting, a number of years ago, and I'm, I'm not here to open a can of worms or politicize anything, but a number of years ago an article was written in the ministry magazine regarding shall we have sports in our schools. There's some very interesting history that's, that, is, um, that is shared there. I believe it was back in the... Oh, my, it's been many years ago, 1990s or think, late 90s. Um, but Battle Creek College, they had a sports program early on, really early on. And Ellen White, even while she's over in Australia, was writing things like, why are you spending money on uniforms? Like, there are people that need to know the message. And, and, and you read, and yet you can go through the Battle Creek newspaper, and you can read the scores year after year. Sometimes they'd listen for a year or two and then they'd go right back to the college is playing the academy or this is playing that and there's this interleague. This tug of war has been real in Adventist education. Not just in this area, but in every area. Between a mostly academic with, with, with uh, learning where, where, where our, our, our schools are focused on the degrees or the classroom instruction, PE is, is uh, only that is that which is only physically profitable. I mean, there's some benefit to be had from running on a treadmill or exercising in a gymnasium. I understand that. There's even some benefit, perhaps team building, to playing games. And, and there's some aspects of character that can happen in a sports environment. But there's also many aspects of character that don't happen in a sports environment. You just have to be around sports environment for a while to realize that. On the other hand, we have Ellen White's counsel that there was actually supposed to be a balanced exercise of body and mind. Tough as educators. I would imagine if you've struggled with that as, as I have through the years. Useful manual labor, uh, learning trade skills, character forming uh, work instead of character deforming work. Recreation should be recreating, and ideally it should be recreating the image of God in us, right? Um, our schools are to be in a rural environment to give more of that physical nurture that we could have or should have. And this is what Ellen White, I'm just going to share one passage on each of these subjects here. The youth should be led to see the true dignity of what? Labor. If any generation needed this message, it's today's generation. The only thing they know how to exercise today, I'm, I'm being I'm hyperbolically here, they only know how to exercise their thumbs. Like, that's this generation. And we need, we need schools who will teach the true dignity of labor. Show them that God is a constant worker. As a rule, the exercise most beneficial to the youth will be found in useful employment. And by the way, the context of this, full disclosure, is she talks about games for little kids. But as they grow older, they need to outgrow some of those games. And the, the most... A beneficial exercise is useful employment. As he gains strength and intelligence, the best recreation will be found in some line of effort that is useful. That which trains the hand to helpfulness and teaches the young to bear their share of life's burdens is most effective in promoting the growth of mind and character. I'm preaching to the choir, I realize again here. What about mental and emotional health? Um, we understand that if we only have people studying books, and Ellen White writes extensively about this, and this is scientifically plausible, um, or provable, that, that actually our mind becomes weaker as it is the organ that is most exercised. I'm sort of using spirit of prophecy language there, but you understand what I'm saying. That without that harmonious... We, we, we find that today, many schools, not just... Um, uh, I mean, it's just the world we live in, they learn for a test or the grade and not for comprehension. 
not for really being able to apply it in the real world, in their real life. They're using textbooks and they're using memorization and they're not learning that, that, that balanced mind and body, learning for application, learning for understanding real world problems. That when you have a work-study program, hopefully, ideally, that's what we're looking for. It's what we're aiming for. Ellen White says this in regard to this. And this is one of my favorite passages on this subject. An education derived chiefly from books leads to superficial thinking. I believe that because I believe the spirit of prophecy growing up. But some years ago, I was listening to National Public Radio. It's not every day that I find confirmation of the spirit of prophecy on National Public Radio. But on this program, um, it, was a, it was a breath of fresh air. I don't think it was on fresh air, but it was one of the programs. Um, they were interviewing an author of a book, and I wish I could find the book. I've looked. I, had, I can't find it. I can't. But I, they were interviewing the author of the book, and as I recall, the name of the book was called Hands, Manual Training Its Impact on American Culture, something like that. They're in, this fellow was, inter, was, was, was reci- citing some very, very interesting studies about learning to work with the hands and its effect on the, on the mind. And this is one of the things he, he told. This was on NPR. He said, recently, one of the largest employers of engineers, it was one of the aerospace giants, it was like Lockheed Martin or Boeing or one of those, they hire hundreds of engineers every year right out of school. Their, 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 uh, their habit of hiring was just to go to the best engineering schools and hire the top students. And it worked for them. They had good results. They were growing, their engineers were successful, they were productive and so forth, they were competitive in the marketplace, everything else. At a certain point, that process stopped working for them. And since they were spending lots of money on human resources, they said, we have to figure out What makes the difference? Because now they were hiring the best students from the best schools, top of their classes. Some of them simply could not perform. They could not take a project from beginning to completion. They had to be handheld every step of the way. Tell them what to do and they could do it. But they couldn't figure it out for themselves. And this is on NPR. The author shares how they this this company did a long-term study of several years. They went back into the, their hiring past and thousands of engineers and, and their current hires. Some of them were, were doing well, some of them weren't. What they found was that after a certain time, the engineers that did well for them were engineers who in high school had maintained their own vehicle. That was it. And as I'm sitting there listening on NPR to how this major U.S. corporation has started hiring engineers that don't just have the degree and the best school and everything else, but who learned at some point to work with their hands. I'm thinking of this passage from the book Education. An education derived chiefly from books leads to superficial thinking. Practical work encourages close observation and independent thought. Rightly performed, it tends to develop that practical wisdom which we call common sense. It develops ability to plan and execute, strengthens courage and perseverance, 
and calls for the exercise of tact and skill. Brothers and sisters, friends of mine this evening, I want you to know that we don't have a work-study program so that when our students get older, they can work as carpenters. or They may. But we believe that God has given us a work-study model of education because it helps them develop their minds. And um, I, I, I'm sure that I could share this from any single one of the institutions being represented here. But since I had it, from Washington Hills, I'm going to share this. There are some who argue that spending so much time in manual training or in work-study program must hurt the students academically. I don't know what it is, but I think since at Washington Hills, the students only take class in the mornings before noon, and since one of those classes is a Bible class, and one of the five days a week, I think it's still the same way, you have a vocational class all morning. So you really only, if you're studying physics or world history or whatever else, you're really only studying it four mornings a week, right? And it's much less time. I'm going to guess, academically, students at Washington Hills Academy probably spend 60 or 70 percent or less classroom time than what would be expected in a, at a public school. And yet, this graphic illustrates from the standardized testing, this illustrates how badly damaged academically those kids are being. Um, this is readiness for college. The light blue is Washington Hills Academy. The light blue is Arkansas, the state. And the uh, dark, dark blue is the, the darkest blue is the national. And you have to also remember that our ACT students, every single one of the seniors in Washington Hills takes their ACT and SAT, whatever their college interest tests are. In the state of Arkansas, most of the high school students only take it if they're planning to go to college. So that's a self-altering statistic, isn't it? Um, your best students in the state are taking the college interest test. And that you, look, at, look at how badly hurt they are by spending all that time learning to work with their hands. I believe, friends, that God's plan works better. You can't outthink God. You can't say, well, they don't have enough classroom time, enough seat time. You, you simply are blessed if you follow his plan. What about in the spiritual realm? In, in some ways, ad, this is the model that some people have of Adventist education. We'll have a Bible class. We'll have chapel and worships. We'll have good church services where the students are spectators. We'll have a really good... Can I get off on a little hobby horse of mine? Um, I have to be really careful. Um... I think that at our Adventist institutions of learning, we ought to try very hard to make our college students or university students, whatever level students they are, our top priority to help them spiritually. Okay? But I think sometimes we do them a disservice. And this is just Chester Clark's musing here, so take it for what it's worth, maybe take it with a grain of salt. It seems to me that we do so much at our college centers, our university, our Adventist centers, to gear our programs towards our wonderful, precious college students, that when they leave, 
and they go to small town South Georgia where there's 15 people in the church. The average age is 65. They find no way to fit in. They haven't been used to doing anything. They've been used to a program that's catered to them. I'll tell you a story. In 1939, an evangelistic series was held in a little town called Dalton, Georgia. The evangelists had been born over here in Cleveland, Tennessee, and to a Baptist family. Long story, I'll, I'll, I'll cut the details. They held an evangelistic series in the theater in Dalton, the Wink Theater. The owner of the theater, well, the other churches in Dalton actually threatened the owner of the theater. They said, if you, if you rent to these Adventists, like you've agreed to rent to them, we're going to tell our members to boycott the theater. Probably should have told them already to boycott the theater, right? But anyway, the theater owner was not very happy about strong-arm tactics being used to try to tell him how he should run his business. So he cut the rent for the series down from $20 to $0.50 or something like that and rented it anyway. Twelve people became the founding members of the church in Dalton. And by the way, Dalton is just 20 miles away from here. It's one of the closest churches. And I'm privileged to pastor there now. Now... A 12-member church of mostly new people, a couple transferred from Rome, Georgia, a couple transferred from the church in Orlando, I think seven new members. How are they going to survive in the little town? Meeting in a house in Dalton, Georgia. There was a student at Southern Missionary College by the name of Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson was an unusual student because he had an automobile. This was like 1939, 1940. And every Sabbath morning, Woodrow Wilson would load up his automobile with other students and they would make the drive from Collegedale, Tennessee, all the way down to Dalton, Georgia. There was, there was no Interstate 75 at that time. If they took the back roads, it would have been dirt roads, probably fording creeks. If they took Highway 41, they would have had to go all the way to Chattanooga and then down Highway 41. But it had to have been at least an hour's drive in 1939, 1940. They would drive to Dalton, Georgia, and the students from Southern Missionary College would play the piano for this little church that was barely starting off the ground. They would tell the mission stories. They would sometimes teach Sabbath school. They would preach the sermons. And I, I, I rather think, I rather think that while 75, 78, 9 years later, the Dalton church is blessed to have had them here, I rather think that they were blessed as college students to be doing that kind of work. I rather think that instead of trying to have a, a, a college center that focuses on a good program the students are spectators in, we need to put young people, Adventist young people, to work. If we could put them to work in the type of churches they're going to be moving to once they leave school, they will be much more likely to stay in those churches and to contribute to those churches and to remain lifelong Adventists. And I will get off my soapbox. But that's something that I have such a burden for. And I am an adjunct teacher at Southern. And I, I tell my students, you can make a difference in a small church around here. If you're bored going to church, and, and some of my students tell me only about 40% of the students attend church. 
If you're bored going to church, go find some place they need you. Go to work. And when I read the story of Avondale, particularly Avondale, those young people, they found churches that needed to be built, small churches. They went and they built them. They found, and, and it was as a result of this hands-on work of the gospel. Ellen White wrote that same year. She said, it is reported that every single one of our students professes to be a Christian. All of them were growing in their spiritual walk with Jesus. It wasn't because they had such a great, fantastic program for college students to keep them entertained. It was because they were putting them to work. And I would propose to you that Adventist education is, is, uh, is responsible to not only, conduct, not only create an environment on campus that is conducive to spiritual growth, but that puts young people to work for the gospel. The first great lesson, Child Guidance, page 239, the first great lesson in all education is to know and understand the will of God. We should bring every, into every day of life the effort to gain this knowledge. To learn science through human interpretation alone is to obtain a false education. But to learn of God and Christ is to learn the science of heaven. The confusion in education has come because the wisdom and knowledge of God has not been exalted. The true object of education is to restore the image of God in the soul. In the beginning, God created him, uh, God created man in his own likeness. He endowed him with a noble with noble qualities. His mind was well balanced and all the powers of his being were harmonious. But the fall and its effects have perverted these gifts. Satan has marred and well-nigh obliterated the image of God in man. It was to restore this that the plan of Salvation was devised and a life of probation was granted to man. And let me just take the first sentence of that paragraph and the last past part of the passage and put them together so that you can see them at once. The true object of education is to restore the image of God in the soul. It was to restore this, that the plan of salvation was devised and that a, and a life of probation was granted to man. You see, the work of education and the work of the plan of salvation are the same work. Education and redemption. In the highest sense, the work of education and the work of re redemption are one. For in education as in redemption, other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. I, I want to end with this passage again from the scriptures, because I love this. If you're an Adventist educator, and I suppose, Dr. Beardsley, whether you're an Adventist institutional educator or a self-supporting educator, there are challenges. You all are familiar with some of them. It's not easy. But the work of education and the work of redemption are one. And this is a promise. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I would propose to you this evening that for this generation to experience this, 
Adventist education needs to be successful. It doesn't have to be in a school environment necessarily, but it's Adventist education nonetheless. It's a whole body message, a whole being message, which Adventist education is. For this to be experienced, that at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a group of people that God can look at and say, here is the patience of the saints, here are they that keep the commandments of Jesus, the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. For there to be that, in, that whole person, restoration of God's image, Adventist education needs to be successful. And the next verse tells us it will be. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. We are privileged, friends. We are privileged to have a front row seat to what God is doing in the hearts and lives of men and women. He is preparing a group of people this, in this generation as he has in other generations. He is using us to prepare a group of people who are experiencing what it means to have the image of God restored in them. And as educators, it begins with us. It begins with us having that experience so that we can pass it on to others. This is not our own project. This is not our own work. This is not something that we are responsible for the success of. Faithful is he who calls you. Who also will do it. Father in heaven, I just want to pray. As tonight we've reviewed, I'm sure for many of us, many things about the work of education and the work of redemption being one. Lord, there's a tug of war going on in this world. This is a great controversy. Our heart is not immune to that tug of war. Even though we may be teachers, pastors, administrators, those responsible for the instruction of others, we ourselves have a need for your divine grace. We need to be restored mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally. We need your grace. We need, to, we need to somehow model to our students what a Christian looks like who is experiencing growth in all of those areas. For we want that, them to have that experience as well. Lord, we want them not just to be successful in this life. We want them to be successful throughout all of eternity. Because they've come to love Jesus. And they're ready for his return. Thank you for calling us to the nicest work ever committed to mortals. And thank you for not leaving us to figure out how to do it. But for giving us your word and giving us the guidance of the spirit of prophecy. And Father, thank you for not leaving us responsible for the outcomes. Because you've already promised that you will do it. Help us simply to be faithful. 
as we seek to follow Jesus, his word, his counsel, that in our lives, the image of God can be reproduced and through our work, through our schools, and Lord, through our churches, through Adventism at, a, at large, the world can know Jesus better and many can be ready for his coming. Thank you for promising to do that work. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org. Dot audioverse.org. Dot